millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, October 26th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... The Mississippi Senate's study group on women, children, and families examines child care access. Then ongoing water problems in Jackson also mean problems for the suburbs that get their water from the city. We look at one town's search for a solution. And this week's History is Lunch takes us back to the Battle of Jackson. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Members of the state Senate study group on women, children, and families resumed their work yesterday. This time, the focus was on the intersection between child care and those working families. Lawmakers heard from stakeholders about the barriers many low-income Mississippians face when trying to juggle work and child care. Ryan Miller is executive director for Accelerate Mississippi. That's a department working with industry leaders and local colleges to grow the state's labor force. He told the study group a number of domino factors pop up when he tours the state. What was interesting to me is in every stop that we made, we were encountered from uh, talking with our economic development partners, industry partners, educators at all levels, community leaders, what we call domino factors. Uh, those things that would prove to be uh, impediments or obstacles in getting people into those pathways and helping them get to those high trajectory careers. I would like to share just a couple with you that I've heard multiple times uh, in multiple locations. One was lack of affordable housing. This particular company and community, they said, we have great training partners, we have great educational partners. We don't have enough housing for our workers that they can afford to live nearby and work here. So they are forced to make the decision, do I forego this employment opportunity and look for work elsewhere, or do I make a long-distance drive round trip every day to take advantage of this? Transportation, we hear this all the time, that we don't have opportunities for people to gain access to training or education or to the job site in certain parts of the state of Mississippi because they lack transportation. And again, our job at Accelerate Mississippi is not necessarily to provide or devise a strategy to get people uh, transportation. It's to be aware of these obstacles and understand how we can work with our partner agencies and organizations uh, and relying on their resources to help alleviate or remove those obstacles in the pathways that we're creating with our educational partners and helping people gain access. So the number one topic that continually comes up is that of childcare. 
or the lack of available child care. In fact, here recently we deployed our uh, ecosystem coordinators, which I'll speak of more specifically in a few moments. And over the course of the last several months that they've been in those positions, we've asked them to detail uh, working with their, their industry sectors and those uh, geographic regions and, and inventory what are your number one problems in gaining access to workforce. And the number one that continually comes back is childcare. So I rely on the statistics and data that Bob certainly brought this morning, our colleagues in, in, in uh, Department of Health. It is a real issue, and anecdotally, industry has been saying this for a number of years, and only in the 18 months that we've been in existence, it has been the number one challenge that has been articulated uh, amongst our industry partners. Miller says some workers feel stuck in the pipeline because they don't have access to training or continuing education to get better paying jobs. And in some parts of Mississippi, dependable child care is nearly impossible to get and then afford. Things that we have heard time and time again is that there's a misalignment in hours. Uh, much of the training opportunities that exist within community colleges or in private industry exist within the normal operational hours of 8 to 5. And if a single mother, one who has a job and perhaps wants a better job, uh, they're not able to quit that job to take advantage of those training opportunities during those 8 to 5 hours and subsequently would rather be able to take advantage of those training opportunities in after-hour formats. Insufficient capacity in those areas where there are child care facilities, Many of them are at their limits. Uh, many of them are uh, at their full capacity, and so there isn't an opportunity for a single mother to take advantage of those. Or in the, the, the extreme cases that we've seen, driving uh, even through parts of the Mississippi Delta, uh, some of our more rural communities, there's a complete lack of child care, as you heard earlier, what they refer to as those child care deserts. One of Accelerate Mississippi's closest partners is the community college system. Community College Board Interim Executive Director Kel Smith says these institutions have a twofold relationship with the child care challenges in Mississippi. In my opinion, the community colleges have two roles in this very important topic. One is to train uh, the, the workforce for these child care facilities and also these pre-K programs. And then secondly, our second important role is to provide resources uh, for single mothers and other at-risk uh, students as they navigate post-secondary education, potentially for the first time. Smith says training programs offered by many of the colleges prepare workers for child care service. And in echoing Ryan Miller's previous comments, recognizes the need to help working parents get additional training and education. Several of our community colleges have partners, partnerships with Second Chance Mississippi, a nonprofit organization. Uh, they provide vouchers for licensed child care facilities and also uh, tuition assistance. And then uh, several have child care facilities on campus for students and employees to take advantage of. And maybe the most important thing that, that we offer as far as courses goes is flexible course offering. Uh, we take students, you know, wherever they are, we realize we have many non-traditional students and they may be working, they may be parents, and so they may not be able to uh, take courses in the traditional method of an 8 to 9 o'clock lecture on Monday morning. Uh, one thing that we have done very well is utilize the Mississippi Virtual Community College. That's our online learning delivery system. Uh, 
It allows students the opportunity to take classes uh, and earn credit, obviously, towards their associate degree. Uh, they receive the same support as if they were in a, in a brick and mortar class. But we recognize the need for flexible course offerings because life does get in the way oftentimes for, for our students. The Senate Group on Women, Children, and Families meets again today. Coming up, ongoing water problems in Jackson means problems for the nearby suburbs that get their water from the city. We take a look at one town's search for a solution. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. How do you solve a problem like Jackson's failing water infrastructure? Equipment problems, flooding recently left hundreds of thousands of people without safe tap water for over a month. And for residents in Byram, the solution is to go their own way. But as Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports, experts argue the answer isn't water independence, but cooperation. Byram, Mississippi has a vigilante plumber, and his name is Richard White, a.k.a. the town mayor. This is the deal right here. This is where I came the other night. This, this is 110. Let's take a look at it, okay? White shows us a new brick house. It's got a big garage and is in the middle of a new development. It's also got a muddy mess in the front yard. The owner recently called the mayor saying she's had a leak for about five months. Now, it's illegal for White to touch the water pipes that lead throughout his town. That's the city of Jackson's job. They own the pipes, and they're the ones responsible for fixing the problems. But Jackson says its water system is underfunded, and it has problems maintaining infrastructure just in its own city limits, let alone Byram. After five months of leaks, White got the word this house no longer had any water inside. So he came here at 8 p.m. with his slip joint pliers, opened the water meter box, and fixed it himself. And somewhere along the line, I think it was right in here, I went down on my knees, but I didn't, I didn't get hurt or nothing. But I mean, covered in a lot of mud. I was I had changed I had changed clothes before I come over here because I knew it was going to be nasty. But this is just not acceptable. White's ready to be done with this plumber by night gig, so he's proposing having Byram break off and run its own water system. We're going to have four wells and one tank. That's how, how much would that cost? Uh, about twenty-six million. Pretty small town. Twenty-six million sounds like a lot of money. It isn't. It is. But right now, there's a lot of money out there that you can use for long-range plans, and that's what we plan to do right now. Mississippi should receive more than $400 million for water infrastructure improvements from the federal infrastructure bill, according to the White House. But White's proposed solution of splintering off from Jackson's water system is actually the opposite of the national trend. Instead of breaking up, U.S. water utilities are merging together. Emily Simonson with the U.S. Water Alliance says there's a very good reason for that. We can think of it like a basic math problem. Basically, the fewer people getting their water from a system, the more each person has to pay for that water. And the United States has a lot of water systems with very few customers. Think about that for a second. We have more than 50,000 drinking water systems 
across the United States. Some of those serve fewer than 10,000 people. So those small systems get pretty expensive. And shrinking populations, like Jackson's, also means the price per customer goes up. But the opposite is also true. The more customers, the cheaper it is for everyone. This idea is why U.S. water utilities are partnering up all over the country. Over the last 30 years, Alabama has cut its number of water utilities in half. The number of private water companies in Louisiana has also shrunk over the last decade. And Jackson's Chamber of Commerce sent out a letter to state officials supporting the idea of a regional water system. That sounds all well and good, but if you're one of the Jackson suburbs with your own perfectly reliable water system, why join up with Jackson's failing one? As Jackson goes, so does the rest of the state. Andre Perry is a senior fellow with the Brookings Institute. He says Jackson is the economic driver of the region. So if Jackson's losing big employers or can't recruit new ones because of issues like water, well, then the Jackson metro is going to be hurting too. But this sort of splintering, it certainly saves those particular institutions, but it's horrible for regional economic growth. Yes, but that's not my problem. My problem is Byron, Mississippi. Byron Mayor Richard White acknowledges breaking away from Jackson's water system will likely make it worse. But he doesn't think it's his town's job to pay for Jackson's maintenance backlog. Like any cooperation, teaming up to run a water system requires trust. And that's something seriously missing between Jackson and the other towns around it, like Byram. The bottom line here is they've had their opportunities. We have water out in our city almost monthly. And Jackson Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba has said he doesn't trust the other cities to make Jackson's water needs a priority, which leaves both Jackson and Byram on the path of taking on the very expensive task of running city water systems on their own. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public media stations in Louisiana and Alabama. Coming up, this week's History is Lunch takes us back to the Battle of Jackson. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein for Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Chris Makowski considers Virginia his home turf. He was historian for the National Park Service at Fredericksburg, and his family even owns parts of, let me get this right, Spotsylvania Battlefield, where he serves as historian resident at Stevenson Ridge, which is part of that battlefield. A conservation project in Vicksburg led him to Mississippi and the story of a battle often overlooked. So in this week's History is Lunch, Mikowski explains how the Battle of Jackson fits into the strategy that led to the Union's success at Vicksburg. And as it turns out, the Battle of Jackson is um, incredibly overlooked in the context of everything else that's going on in Mississippi in the spring of 63. So I was really glad to have the chance to dive in and tell a story that has been overlooked in favor of other parts of that campaign. 
What is the importance of the Battle of Jackson? Um, a lot of people look at it as sort of a throwaway action as Ulysses S. Grant is moving toward Vicksburg, Mississippi. And he crosses the river um, down by Port Hudson and he moves his, um, uh, excuse me, he crosses the river down by Port Gibson and he, he starts moving up toward Raymond. And from there, he was going to cut the railroad that goes from Jackson to Vicksburg. But he suddenly gets reports of a threat in his rear, and he makes the spur-of-the-moment decision to go up to Jackson, capture the city, cut off the railroad there, and then move on into Vicksburg. It becomes a really important decision for him, though, because Jackson at the time is the center of manufacturing, it's the center of transportation, it's the center of communication, um, not just for Mississippi, but for the whole uh, part of the Deep South. And so by cutting that off, Grant is really able to better secure the rear of his army as he then shifts toward Vicksburg to try to capture the city. What, how long did it take for him to capture Jackson? And this, was, this war was fought in May of 1863? Yes. So the Battle of Jackson takes place on May 14, 1863. And it would probably take people longer to read the book than it took for the battle to be fought. It was a pretty quick action. It takes place in the pouring rain. The roads are flooded. Uh, the Union Army has a really tough time trying to even get to the battlefield because the mud is so bad. But the Confederates who were occupying the city basically pull up and turn tail before the Federals really even have the chance to hammer on them. And uh, they abandon the city without putting too much up, putting up too much of a fight. Do you know why that is? Um, there are a lot of reasons why people sort of speculate. Uh, people speculate a lot of different reasons on why the Confederates gave up Jackson so easily. But the Confederate commander was a guy named Joe Johnston, and it's easily the lowest part of his long storied Civil War career. He's got a incredible reputation, and he doesn't want to have to get sent to Jackson in the first place. When he does, I think he's more worried about his own reputation than the Confederate capital. And so he pulls out rather than risk getting defeated in a way that's going to tarnish his reputation. He yep. complicates matters because he then sends word over to the guy who's defending Vicksburg, and those orders get really confusing. And he causes all sorts of problems because he doesn't go in there with a very steady, firm hand. And so what is the shape of Jackson once the Union Army has it in its hands? So the Union Army will spend a day basically tearing up infrastructure, destroying railroads, destroying anything that has military value, destroying some of the manufacturing centers, um, and then basically it'll turn toward Vicksburg. Jackson will actually have the chance to start to rebuild itself almost in the immediate aftermath of that battle. The Federals come back again in July and destroy the city again because the Confederates were trying to, um, you know, revitalize it. Then the Union Army comes back again in early 1864 as it marches to Meridian and back. So it actually comes through twice. And so as a result of these many different Union occupations and encounters, um, the city really gets gutted. It becomes known as Chimney Town because so much of the city is destroyed over the course of these occupations. You are going to be talking about your book at Mississippi Department of Archives and History's History 
is lunch at noon today at the two museums. What do you want the audience to take away from this battle? So much of the battlefield from the Battle of Jackson is lost. And what portions are there really kind of date to the July occupation. So it's really a forgotten story that people in the city have forgotten about uh, because there aren't those physical reminders of what actually happened. Uh, That's one reason why I think battlefield preservation is so important. So I'm hoping at the very least people will come and hear about this battle that literally took place in their backyards there and uh, understand like history is happening all around them, um, even if they don't have those physical reminders, and then hopefully they'll better appreciate some of that history and explore it more on their own. Now, you mentioned that there are no physical reminders, but is there anything that points back to that period? There is um, a small earthwork up near the medical center, and there is a small set of earthworks down near Battlefield Park. Um, And those are really the only remnants that are left. You can fortunately see the topography of the battlefield pretty well, um, but you have to sort of know what you're looking at. And that's one of the things that I hope I do in my book is to help people be able to stand in, say, a parking lot, look in this direction, and here's what the soldiers would have seen if they were looking or moving in this direction. And you can still see some of that today. Okay. And what are earthworks? An earthwork would be a fortification that soldiers built, and they would use that for defense. Typically, they would um, hide behind it, use it as a shield in front of them, give them a good, strong defensive position. And uh, it was really a challenge to try to attack earthworks. Uh, The conventional wisdom at the time was that it took three attackers for every one defender if you were going up against earthworks. Anything that I didn't ask you that's important to mention about discussing your book? One of the things that I really tried to do in the book is tell the story in an engaging way. Um, I'm one of those historians who hates boring history. (laughs) You know, when I was growing up and I learned it, it was names and dates and places that you had to memorize and uh, in many ways dry as sawdust. But when you realize that good history is a good story, uh, then it's easy to get swept into it and caught up and and captivated. So I really tried to pay attention to make sure it was a well-written, interesting book from a narrative point of view, rather than just a recitation of dry historical facts. Chris Makowski, the author of The Battle of Jackson, Mississippi, and he will be speaking to the audience at Mississippi Department of Archives History as lunch today at noon at the two museums. Thank you so much for sharing some of the information that went into writing your book. My privilege. Thanks for having me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.